Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies, a channel in the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today, delighted to say my guest is Donald Harmon Akinson. Donald is Douglas Professor of Canadian and Colonial History at Queen's University, Ontario, and we're talking to him today about his new book, just published by Oxford University Press, The Americanization of the Apocalypse, Creating America's Own Bible. Don, it's great to have you back in the show Congratulations on this book. It is magnificent, and it's, it's going to be a delight to talk to you about it. Well, thank you, Crawford. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have a chance to talk with you. Well, this is not your first book, is it? Uh, you've been writing a, a huge amount of material in the fields of Irish history, history of the Bible, history of religion, and most, most recently you've been working on a trilogy, this being the third instalment in that trilogy, on, I suppose, what we might call the emergence of American fundamentalism uh, or, or popular conservative Protestantism. How does this book, The Americanization of the Apocalypse, fit into your very, very considerable corpus of work? Um, that's a fair question. Uh, my formal job description, I guess when I was hired here at Queen's University in Ontario, was to be a historian of the British Isles, but mostly of Ireland. And so my formal job description is I'm an Irish historian and of, let's say, modern period. Uh, I'm pretty good after 1800s. Before that, you might, <laughs> might make some significant errors. That's one thing. But through what, following the Irish diaspora, I became interested particularly in the Irish in Canada, which explains why my chair is in Canadian history, um, and I should quickly add Canadian and colonial, which these days is a very contested term indeed. Uh, and one of the most important things if you ever in Irish history is what you know, is that you cannot understand anything unless you're willing to at least become familiar with in some depth, with both the social and the ideological beliefs of major religious Christian groups, so that's kind of where this all comes kind of comes together now. I guess um, that said, uh, I'm also kind of interested in well unsettling the American historiography a little bit. Um, it's American history, as I read it, is wonderfully rich terrific bibliodensity, but really parochial. And one of the things in this book and in other things I've done, I want to 
suggest to American historians that if, if only if they know only America, they don't know America well. And I'm, I'm using, by the way, the term America for the United States here. Um, so there's all kinds of things come together in this present uh, exercise, I guess. Uh, one of the things that one picks up related to all that is that originalism, that is the care of a, what's the meaning of original text, is very big in U.S. history. And one of the, the ultimate original texts, even more original than the United States Constitution, is the Bible. And to that extent, a new Bible, and I argue that Schofield reference Bible is a brand new product. Um, that a new Bible is absolutely quickly assimilated into American thought as long as it can claim originalism, that it is the original truth of the, of the text, as the Supreme Court of the U.S. tries to do with the Constitution. So it all kind of comes together there. Um, and he really wanted a one big question, and I'm going to put it kind of demonically. Um, how does America in the present day get so messed up? And one tiny fragment of that is um, it bought into a form, a new form of Christianity, a um, form that hadn't existed until at least 1830 or 40. It bought into a new form of Christianity and a text, a particularly strong text, the Schofield Reference Bible, that uh, introduced a set of beliefs that become absolutely almost why, well, at least widespread, if not universal in American demonic culture. Um, and so how in the world do those ideas get there? Because they don't seem to have come directly from the err the cause that American historians like them deal with often when they deal with religion, which is we point to the Puritans, say something about the Great Awakening, and then say, oh, and it all comes from there. In this case, it all came from someplace else. This new Bible fundamentally came from Ireland. And maybe that's Irish historians' bias. But I think, I hope your your listeners will at least give this idea a day in court. So does, does that make sense, Crawford? It does. Now, it's a, it's a fascinating argument, and obviously it's an argument you've developed in the previous two books in this trilogy, mm-hmm. the final volume of which we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. This idea of migration, the migration of ideas, the migration of people who hold those ideas is central to this body of work, isn't it? And in fact, you structure the first part of this book around ideas of migration and, and you borrow in a very creative way some of the very artful work on the history of the Mediterranean to make comparative points about the, the Great Lakes region of, of North America too, don't you? Yeah, and maybe we'll mention that second that point second, Bob, the, the Mediterranean of our continent, North America, which is the Great Lakes. But um, mentioning migration is really important because historians of labor, historians of migration, demographers pay a lot of attention to what's called the long 19th century. Let's say 1815 to 1910, 1914, and in which the amazing out from Europe, from the British Isles, comes to North America. And that's well recognized. 
put it in there. walled off from that. In the second a re realization of this, what this great physical migration meant, it meant also a great migration, a great diaspora of Christianity. And I would argue, in fact, the great diaspora of Christianity is in that long 19th century, uh, when it fills up, really infills basically the Western Hemisphere and pretty much does fairly well in parts of Asia and in, 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 the, in the African continent. So, talk about migration. Migration historians do not like generally to talk about religion except as kind of a, a sociological determinant. And I think one of the important parts about this great physical diaspora of the European thought is the thought that comes with it. I should say migration bodies bring thoughts, human agency. You can't just have ideas gently waft across the North Atlantic and land and convert people in North America. Um, there's a very specific physical migration that takes place. Um, it's incredibly important to watch the for instance, the, the Catholic Church, which does extraordinarily interesting things based on um, the particularly Irish migration to the U.S. and to Canada. Well, anyway, the important point is there is that, uh, in my view, a particularly salient, salient aspect of migration, which is that of a specific group that was ideologically strong, had its own ideology, its own sense of agency, and stemming from Ireland, the first infiltrated, let's call it that, um, large, significant parts of Protestantism and the British Isles, mostly in southern, southwestern England, in London, and then consciously used Canada as the entry point for this new form of radical apocalyptic evangelicalism. Um, we, we'll use the word brethren for these people. Um, it's a little bit hard to find the exact term to denominate them, because these people were wonderfully modest and didn't really fly any particular flag with its name on it. But we're talking about the people that become colloquially called Plymouth Brethren. Um, and these are important to distinguish between there are several other ethnic groups in North America, rather socioeconomic groups that use the term brethren. Okay. So anyway, the point is, um, the main point is that this Christian diaspora, a big phenomenon, has one strong strand, which turns out to be radical apocalyptic evangelicalism. And the... And when I tell you that, you say, well, big deal. The point is that within the historiography of the West, the period from roughly 1865 to 1910, let's call it the Gilded Age, let's call it the Reconstruction Era, that era, religion tends to be almost written out uh, in general histories. There's so much else going on, urbanization, reconstruction of Southern racism, and so on. But uh, this has been written out as, as John Butler had a famous article on this, um, which really suggests that the historiography misses the point. Um, there was a really strong religious 
aspect of the Gilded Age. And this religious aspect is dependent on the nomination. The one point part is definitely um, evangelicalism becomes. Because front page news, Dwight L. Modi made major kind of urban uh, revivals. Um, so you have to build this into the general culture, is my point. Uh, it doesn't just happen to grow out of to grow out of the kind of old nostrum of Plutonium, you know, Puritanism and Great Awakenings. It is a missionary youth movement that first of all works is aimed at at Canada and then via Canada aimed at the northern quadrant, northeastern quadrant of the United States. Why do I why is that a some an interesting thing related to your question about Brodell. The northern quarter of the United States after was during essentially during the Civil War period was locked into place. Um, obviously the southern the combat border between the south, south and the north it was pretty much blocked at the Mississippi. The northern world which has Toronto which has Detroit which is Montreal, which is Buffalo. You go on. It, it is essentially a single borderland region. And despite there being a physical border there, it isn't really honored very much, even even in customs, except literally taxes or anything. And it's a terrific migration from Canada into north of the U.S. And of one bunch is the Plymouth Brethren who are very much aware uh, of both economic aspect of, hey, it's make a better living in the U.S., and secondly, um, find it as a field for Christian expansion in their world. So I hate to tell Americans this, but in the mind of many people in the British Isles, the United States was just as much a heathen itch, that's the word they would use, heathen, um, the uh, behavior and belief, as was the African continent. The U.S. was a missionary field, and the brethren are really good missionaries. Uh, so that's a, that's a long answer, but I think particularly in our present day, when North America is so worried about the southern border between Mexico, Mexico and the United States, we have to realize the real borderland, the real porous cultural point uh, up to the First World War anyway was between Canada and the United States. And there, a body of Anglo, we call them Anglo, well, Canadians, we just call them Anglos, period. English speakers from kind of the British Isles political systems were very efficient at moving into the northern, northeast quadrant of the United States. And so, what is thought of sometimes, the, the conclusion in a way, as Southern evangelical religion now actually was Northern urban religion a century ago. That's where it's coming from. Um, I'll stop there because I'm, I was kind of running on Crawford, and I'm sure you have a, a comment, Tom, for his intervention that could, if you'd like to have. Fascinating, Don, fascinating. Now, the... The work that you draw attention to that, that carved out some of this field, what, 50 years ago now, well, over 50 years ago, 
is Sandman's book on the origins of fundamentalism. And uh, it's a classic work. Uh, As you say in the book, it's not nearly as well known by historians as it ought to be. But it's a book that that focuses a great deal on the leader of that group you just mentioned, a man called John Nelson Darby. Now, in in the way that you tell this story, first of all, you write a much bigger book uh, than Sandine, both conceptually geographically and also in terms of length because uh, this is a very significant chunky book um, but one of the things that you do is you really you widen out the, the, the focus don't you so uh, it's not just Darby and a number of key American um, evangelical leaders who are forming uh, what becomes mm-hmm. fundamentalism you've, you've got a cast of characters that, that has full of surprises um, one of the central passages in the book focuses on four of these individuals four men as it happens uh, mm-hmm. We certainly pay attention to women elsewhere in the book too. Uh, Arthur Wells, William Craig Baines, uh, and the two Grant brothers. Who who are these men, and why are they important to this story? How did they make this yeah. an American story, a North American story? The yeah, um, you mentioned George uh, John Nelson Darby, um, and he is crucial, of course, to what happened. But yeah, standing. Work I respect immensely and is so underappreciated in my view. Nevertheless, does overfocus on Darby. Darby is a given. We're talking about a Anglican clergyman uh, of the 1820s and 30s. Is um, um, becomes a vector as well as the most important vector of a set of beliefs. But I to make Darby the total founder of these beliefs is to miss the point. Uh, yeah, um, the people you mentioned, I mean, Darby is the key missionary. He spends from 1862 to 1878, he spends at least half his time in North America, going from small congregation to small fellowship and encouraging them and effectively, you know, converting an awful lot of seriously big-time spiritual people in the U.S. The people you mentioned, Wells, Baines, and the two grandbrothers, are example of the the intermediate stage, the Canadian stage, as it were, uh, the entry stage into North America. Wells, <laughs> you're going to look up on characters. Uh, Wells was a very skilled engineer who had bought into uh, a quick example, who bought into the, married into the uh, family compact, which is a semi-aristocracy, and had done very well out of building, being one of the, the railway builders um, of the Grand Trunk Railroad and some of those other things, the first way, go halfway across the continent. Uh, he becomes converted in uh, himself in the has great has a great house where he can have seventy five guests and has video missionary conferences. A great Christian, you would say, and indeed he was. The only problem is this became a bit of a surprise to his wife when he simply took off with the maid and uh, went to the far west. Uh, and between the two wives, he had fifteen children and died quiet in Christian life. Apparently, according to the obituaries, it was never clear if he was. Um, if he was divorced. Okay, strong personalities like that. William Baines, the, the registrar of and number two of McGill University, becomes converted when he's a, a poor farmer, an immigrant farmer, 
I say poor, not unskilled farmer in the eastern townships. And uh, again, it's only an indigenous thing, but these people are effective in North, they don't just work in Canada, that's the point. They are articulate, they know, they have certain social standing, and they, they take Brandonism into the, into the U.S. Uh, leave the Grant Brothers alone for a bit. I think um, real interesting characters I find are um, particularly James Hall Brooks, but especially Schofield himself, and then we Pearl Fruit um, crowd. Could I, do you wish me to just mention about those briefly? By all means. So you, you, the subtitle yeah. of your book, Don, Creating America's Own Bible, that's really a reference to Schofield, isn't it? And I suppose 100%. It, it would be an important thing for listeners to understand that the Bible that we're yeah. talking about today, Schofield's uh, annotated edition, has sold yeah. how many copies? Tens of millions, it's thought, from yeah. Oxford University Press. I mean, it must be one of the best selling academic publications ever yeah i think that's true and the key thing to understand about this we'll talk about this bible that appears in 1909 and then in, and then 1917 and then on and on in other forms uh, it, it it says reference bible and one thing one's getting you know, the usual commentaries which are useful but no this is a lot of you I'm not being facetious when I suggest this is a really fascinating example of what becomes postmodernism. Uh, it is a totally anachronistic thing. But this Bible is one of those cases where, just like postmodern literary and artistic criticism, the frame is considered as important or often more important than the actual content of the work. You cannot read this Bible as a reference Bible, really. It is really telling you that it's framed typographically so that you have to read Schofield first. And Schofield's comments, and they are, they are a brethren Bible, essentially. But it is an incredibly cast-iron frame that you cannot, um, you just cannot ignore. So that's what we're talking about. Um, and it becomes... It, it, you mentioned our, it comes from Oxford University Press, and that's important. Oxford University Press, in the 18, only in the middle 1890s, did its, begin to think about having a North American branch. And it was up to that point just jobbing books through distributors. A man named Henry Proud is the boss, the publisher in Oxford, and he comes to the U.S. and founds essentially through New York corporate law, Oxford University Press-North America. And its first significant volume is this Bible, that first big moneymaker. And without this moneymaker, let me be honest, I don't think Oxford University Press would exist, at least in North America. It took them all the way through the 30s into the, the mid-40s or 50s. Uh, that's to confirm what you were saying. This was simply a mega seller. It still is. Uh, it's in various, various versions. Um, but I mentioned the frame. The frame is really significant because it is visually captures the book. Text the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, to use Christian vocabulary. 
And the reason that happens, and happens so beautifully, is the publisher of, of Oxford University Press in London is an exclusive brother. And he quiet, but immensely powerful. And what do we know about background about Oxford University Press in 1895 and 1905, 1915? It's still, we know it has the one guaranteed money maker in the whole English-speaking world. It still has what's called the Bible privilege. It's one of the three groups, three publishers that can legitimately publish a Bible in, in, in the metropole. So, you have this Plymouth Brethren, exclusive brother, who is immensely powerful, and a man in history, Cyrus Anderson Schofield, comes to him with a project. I want to finish this reference Bible. And Brown, who is so skillful, first of all, <laughs> out negotiates. Schofield, he picks up a great deal as well, kind of brother in financial support. And Brown, I'm convinced, should be called the co-author of the Schofield Reference Bible because it is took this very skilled typographical framework that means you don't get to read the Bible without looking, reading that stuff first that tells you what you're going to get. And that is why I'm not embarrassed to be saying I really think it is a new Bible, and it was developed in the period when I'm having the center of fundamental, proto-fundamentalism that has moved from Canada into the United States. And then I think it's a century-making blocker in that the political scientists of need Sociologists deal with the American religion without dealing with the ideology of that book is to miss what was going on. I I don't think America today would recognize it. Look, the term apocalypse, term rapture, various things like that, uh, tribulation even with a capital T, were not part of vocabulary of American culture in 1910. You can't turn, you can't go to Netflix without running into all three of those within within first six short ten thirds you do. Um, so it, I'm arguing that the, this book that explains or is contributory to much of twentieth century white Christian nationalism it actually come into being as a result of a process that took place beginning in the eighteen twenties in Ireland and it culminates in New York in nineteen ten with the production of this amazing version, amazing capture of the script of the scriptures. Well, Don, we've taken up a lot of your time today talking about this really stimulating new book, the Americanization of the Apocalypse, creating America's own Bible. Um, before we wind up, though, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? I could. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, uh, in my I guess before the turn of the century, I did a couple of novels about uh, strange characters in Canadian history. One of them was the founder of the Orange Order, and um, the other second one is about the first woman to sit in the Canadian Parliament, whom 
I suggest was that under the name of John White. So that's and I got one more to finish. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do that, but particularly I wanna weave in a lot of the nineteenth century at least in Canada and in the northern US, weave in a lot of the general spirituality of some of the very strange sorts, other main blowing, but that kind of ran through everyday life and it's the kind of thing that has fallen out of our understanding of the period. Our, and as I particularly indicated earlier, I don't think you can understand anything about the second half of the Victorian period unless you put into it these people with amazing mystical experiences themselves that take them to that daily, daily sometimes, often weekly, part of their life. Uh, so it's Yes, God walked in the dark hills, but um, he, the people he walked with did have some kind of comfort and mystical touch with him. And I think I can I can finish up and at least have an interesting novel out of that one. Okay, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> uh, it does sound fascinating. Maybe we'll get you back in the show to talk about it, Don, if you're willing to do that. Thank you, Crawford, very much. Well, thank you. Um, fantastic book. Highly recommend it. The Americanization of the Apocalypse, Creating America's Own Bible. As I said before, it's the third part of a trilogy that Don's been working on over the last, I suppose, six or seven years, all of which are tracking uh, from Ireland to North America, the emergence of this apocalyptic fundamentalist worldview. It's full of fascinating new interpretations, new lines of inquiries, some really important new sources, including the Oxford University Press Archive, uh, that, that really enlivens uh, the, the story of how the Schofield Reference Bible is commissioned, uh, contracted, uh, and published. Uh, and of course, it raises huge questions about what we know about the formation of fundamentalism and the millennial and apocalyptic views that go with it. Don, thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you for coming onto the show and for talking about it today. Yeah, And thanks to everyone else for listening in. I'll see you next time on the New Books Network podcast.